it is in his name that we continue to declare his truth and to do so, I'd like for you to take your copy of God's Word, whether you have an app on your device that you use or a printed copy as I prefer, and find the book of Jeremiah chapter 20. Your worship was rich this morning, and I hope you'll continue to worship as we hear from the Lord's Word. We do a lot of things as a church family, but corporate worship is especially important because it gives us the opportunity to let the Lord hear from us. That's what you've done over the last few minutes as you've declared his goodness in song. And to let our hearts hear from him. That's what we're about to do. Now, no individual, no man or no woman can claim to speak the words of God. We don't have to. I have them here. I'm holding them in my hand. That's why we have such a high view of the Bible. We believe this is the word of God. And so we have an opportunity this morning, both you and I, to come under his word and to hear from him. We're finishing up a sermon series inside of a long journey through the book of Jeremiah. We come to the last sermon in a series of sermons we've called Reworked. We took that word from chapter 18, not our chapter this morning. We're in chapter 20 this morning. But in chapter 18, verse 4, Jeremiah is taken down to the potter's house. And he has given one of the most amazing living examples of the work of God in all of the Old Testament. Certainly it is the most popular metaphor in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 18, verse 4, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he, referring to the potter, Jeremiah observed, reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And of course, Jeremiah is given this living example of God's ability to take our imperfections, our creases, our cracks, our crevices, and press them into something usable, something beautiful, something obedient, something faithful to the Lord. And in fact, that's what the book of Jeremiah is about. It is a divine prophecy of judgment. Jeremiah has been called out from a very young age to tell the nation of Judah that their days are numbered due to their own idolatry, their own disobedience, and that the king of the north, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to march on Jerusalem and destroy it. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy it to never be returned to its former glory and course unless the Lord returns, and then there will be, of course, with him, the new Jerusalem, the book of Revelation speaks about. Even this week, we've been reminded of the significance of Jerusalem as there is conflict today, of course, through the nation of Israel and through the Palestinian uh, terrorist Hamas and all of the things that are happening inside of that. And when we begin to unpack and unfold God's word, what we find is, is that everything we see today has already been been experienced and spoken to through his word, especially this subject. Have anyone ever accused you of being all over the place emotionally? You ever had someone say, man, you're all over the place. One minute you're happy and things are going great, and the next minute you want to bite my head off. One minute you, you're ready to charge the mountain, take the hill, and the next minute you are defeated and deflated and discouraged. 
Now, guys, do not bump your wife while I'm talking like this, okay? I'm just going to tell you. You have to line up something with our biblical counseling ministry if you do that. Ladies, I'm not just talking about you. Guys, I'm not just talking about you. Students, I'm not just talking about you. Our precious retirees, I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about all of us. All of us have had experiences in our lives where in a short period of time, we felt great highs, close to God, victorious, strong, resilient, courageous. Only in the same week, we felt defeated and discouraged, probably disappointed in ourselves. I mean, just think about our week. People be putting gas in Walmart bags. <laughs> mask on, mask off, mask on, ma mask off. Certainly no peace right now in the Middle East. Continual uh, reporting of all kinds of mixed messages politically about our southern border. There's continually frustration from not hearing communication from our Leaders, we saw the cancel culture on display uh, this week and everything that takes place in Hollywood. And, and, and if you're not careful, you just take the headlines from Monday through Friday. You read one headline, man, that's great. Next headline, oh my goodness, huh? Jesus, are you coming back this week? Because it feels like it. And one of the greatest misconceptions of Christianity is that somehow Christians are immune from a range of emotions. I think there are people outside the faith who think that we define maturity as someone who doesn't experience the range of human emotions. So, so, someone who's a stalwart, who, who never feels low or high, but is always the same. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritual maturity is not the absence of a range of emotions. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean you don't have the right to feel really low and really high. Spiritually mature women in the room, spiritually mature men in the room, spiritually mature individuals watching online, just know that you don't allow your emotions to determine your behavior. But make sure you're clear. Christianity is not the absence of feeling a range of raw emotions. And there is probably no better proof text of this than chapter 20 of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, one of the commentators that I was reading this week in my study of this book reminded me that this is not just Jeremiah's experience, that it is, in fact, Jesus' experience. I remember when I was baptized as a young boy, I was given one of those Bibles with pictures in it. And one of the pictures I grew up seeing was the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you have this picture in that little Bible you grew up with? I, I did. And of course, we know the story of Gethsemane, a true story where Jesus, the night of his arrest, on his way with his disciples to the garden where he will be intercepted by Judas Iscariot and the temple guards. 
goes to pray. And in that moment of prayer, the curtain is pulled back on the raw emotion and anguish that Jesus is feeling. The Bible teaches us, we affirm at Church at the Meal, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. By being fully God, we know he's the sinless son of God, the lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. He showed his deity by his ability to do miraculous things, to walk on water, to heal the sick, to make the blind to see, to make the lame to walk, to cleanse the leper. But we also know that in addition to being fully God, Jesus was fully man. Of course, this is the beautiful picture of the gospel. And as a human being, he felt the weight, the crushing weight of what he was about to face. And unlike you and me, he had the divine perspective of knowing exactly that Calvary was coming and what it would mean for him. And in that anguish, the intersection of his humanity and his divinity meet at Gethsemane and he is wrestling with the Lord and he makes statements like, if there's any way this cup can pass for me. But then he ends it with that divine obedience Father, not my will, but your will be done. One commentator said, if that is Gethsemane, then Jeremiah chapter 20 is Jeremiah's Gethsemane. It is this moment of intersection where raw emotions of wonderful faithfulness and extraordinarily, extraordinary discouragement bubble up together. And as is often the case, it's always triggered by persecution by sorrow, and by suffering. Look what happens just in the first few verses of chapter 20. Now, Peshur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer of the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Now, what is these things? Well, it's everything we covered last week, but Jeremiah is ultimately prophesying against the people of Judah's uh, disobedience, their idolatry, and he's condemning them as God told him to do. Well, Peshur has the ability to do something about that. So what does he do? Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 2. Then Peshur beat Jeremiah the prophet, and by the way, that's a literal reading, beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. By the way, that's a prominent location. He wasn't just trying to physically punish Jeremiah. He was trying to defeat him emotionally through shame. He was trying to humiliate Jeremiah, to take the winds out of his prophetic sails. Look at verse 3. The next day, when Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Peshur, but terror on every side. Of course, verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6 are Jeremiah continuing to do what he was told to do, to prophesy into the face of authority, to prophesy false, to prophesy against false prophets. Look at verse 6. And you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity to Babylon. You shall go there and you shall die. And there you shall be buried. And you and your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. Boom. Chapter ends there. I'm good. Prophet stands up, does what God tells him to do. The world doesn't want to hear the message, beats him, locks him in stocks, shames him, humiliates him. He releases him, which proves Jeremiah really wasn't a criminal. He's trying to make an example out of him. Releases him, and no sooner has Jeremiah been released, he steps back up to the microphone of his culture and says, no, 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 you're the one that's going to be punished, for the Lord God is already decided to judge you. It kind of makes Jeremiah out to be this confident prophet who will not be shut up or shut down. He's going to keep on keeping on. If the chapter ended there, the sermon 
would probably not end there. But if the chapter ended there, it would be one of those sermons where I would point out the obedience of a prophet in the face of persecution. But lean in here real close. Listen to me. That's not where the chapter ends. In fact, some of you are at that low point or you're fresh out of it. Others of you have actually grown frustrated with the roller coaster ride that is your faith. You beat yourself up at times. You feel guilty for doubt. Maybe you're one of those people who likes to question everything, and so you always have a, a cynical comment. You could be that person that's just pure-hearted and jovial and just loves to love people, but everybody you seem to love to love stomps all over your love, takes advantage of your generosity and your kindness. You may be sick in your body this morning and wondering, God, well, I've been trying to serve you. I've been faithful and and now I'm, I'm sick, I'm, 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 I may be facing something serious. Others of you have lined up a list of everything you think you're supposed to be doing for the Lord. And by the way, lists aren't bad. I wrote a book about a list, Gather, Grow, Give, Go. It's not a bad thing. But you've lined up all the lists, you've checked all the boxes, and yet there are areas where you don't see the Lord working and you don't even know how to voice it, but you're growing somewhat frustrated as if maybe, just maybe, you bought into something that's not delivering on its word. If that's you or it's ever been you, chapter 20 is for you. Because no sooner has Jeremiah been beat down, shamed, and humiliated he continues to be obedient and tells his persecutors that God will judge them. That we get this raw emotion coming out. We get Jeremiah's Gethsemane. And the first picture we see is the conflict Jeremiah is facing over rejection. Look what happens in verse 7. Oh Lord, you have deceived me a pretty tall order. This is a man who's not playing any games. He's saying, God, I've been sold a bag of goods that aren't delivering. You have deceived me. And by the way, Lord, I was deceived. You are stronger than I. Now, again, that could be interpreted as a praise, but in the context, he's not saying, oh, Lord, you're greater than me. He's saying, you win. You win. I've been deceived. Look what else he says. And you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. And when do they mock Jeremiah? Well, when he's preaching. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. And by the way, if you've been on this journey with me, you know that the first 19 chapters, Jeremiah has delivered a lot of bad news. But there's just one problem. Where's Nebuchadnezzar? Where's the Babylonians? Son, come up today, Jeremiah. You going to tell us we're all going to hell again? Well, we did business today, Jeremiah. So-and-so's son got married. We buried his grandmother today. We ate today. Jeremiah, where's all this gloom and doom you keep talking about? And Jeremiah has been preaching his heart out, telling people to repent for God is going to judge their idolatry, and yet no punishment seems to come. The world just gets up and goes forward with another day and another day. And at this point in his journey, Jeremiah has had enough, and he comes before God, and he said, I've been deceived. I am the laughingstock of my people. And it proves something even among biblical prophets like Jeremiah. See, this is one of the great 
disconnects in the Word of God. We, we, we tend to put those people on pedestals. We see people like Ruth and Mary and Mary Magdalene and Esther and Abraham and Joseph and David and Jonathan and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Nehemiah and, and, and Isaiah. And we go, oh, these are our biblical heroes. Again, there is much to admire from them. But in this book I'm holding, there is but one who always got it right. The rest of them are as flawed as you are. And Jeremiah is showing us his warts because he says, God, I'm rejected. I'm the laughing stock. And you know what was in Jeremiah? A beating human heart. You know what's in every beating human heart in this room? And those of you watching online, I'll tell you. It, it is in this innate desire to belong, to be accepted. You know, we, we all want that. I was reminded of that yesterday. I, I went to a dance recital. I love my daughters. Of course, like every dad in the room, I felt like my daughter did the best. She's beautiful and she's gifted and she's talented. All my kids make me so proud. I'm so thankful for them. Thank God for their mother's genetics. But I, I found two girls impressed me yesterday. Not just my daughter, who I was proud of. Of course, you know with the dance recital, don't get to just watch your daughter. No, no. You've got to watch all the troops come out, all the groups. And, and I, I found my eye going toward the little girls that couldn't dance. Now, now I, I, I want to be respectful here. I've never made fun of somebody's daughter. But you know, not all of us have the same ability to dance. Some of you are incredible athletes, or you were, and the older you get, the better you were. <laughs> Others of you can't walk and chew gum. You trip when the carpet changes colors. And by the way, that's male and female. What impressed me was the little girls had no coordination, but they didn't know it. The other girls would execute their tumbles, and they'd just kind of do one of these. All the group would run over here, and they'd be running that way. The precious lady in the back behind the curtain would be pointing them out, and with passion, they danced all over that floor. Ain't hit a step yet. Ain't been on beat, not made a move, and it did not matter. They marched out and pressed it, and the mother would have thought they were perfect, and I guarantee you every day I'd be like, how much I pay for that? And why are we proud of those kids? Why is it that we're drawn to the underdog? Give me a kid that'll work hard, that'll lift, that'll build himself up and do what he can. If he's average, I'll go with him every day of the week. Give me a young lady who might not be the most elegant or the most beautiful, but she'll try the hardest. Why? Because we fight for people when we see them fighting to belong, fighting to make the team, fighting to get the job, fighting to make their bills, fighting to be someone significant. We all want to root for that because within the human experience is this desire to be accepted. You don't lose that when God calls you to step out on faith and be different. Yet if you just look at verses 7 down through verse 10 and you were to make a list of all the things that Jeremiah's enemies wanted for him, what did they want? They wanted to disregard him. He said, they're ignoring me. They wanted to disrespect him. He was the laughing stock. They wanted to denounce him and ultimately they wanted to defeat him. Look at verse 10. 
For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Now watch this, and this again speaks to Jeremiah's pain. Say all my close friends. You know, it's one thing to deal with somebody who does not believe the way you believe, who has a different ideology, a different theology, a different philosophy of life to disagree with you. This should not surprise us. But I'm going to tell you, there's a pain that comes that's deeper than normal rejection when someone who started out as your friend won't go down the road of obedience with you. And Jeremiah says in verse 10, watching for my fall, perhaps he will be deceived. He's quoting his enemies. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. They'd gone from laughing at him to hating him and wanting him to fall. If you stand for the Lord, somebody you think stood with you really wants you to fail. I do not preach nor do I teach to live with a victim mentality. That's for the name it, claim it, prosperity crowd. I'm not interested in you always feeling as though you are a victim, but biblically speaking, I promise you this, if you're serious about doing what God has called you to do, you will have enemies and there'll be some friends that will ultimately show themselves to be your enemy. Now, it might not be in outright beating you or locking you in stocks as Jeremiah, though we have no guarantee that day will not come. In fact, we have a guarantee it will come, but watch this. There will be people who oppose what you stand for, look for something in your words or your past to cancel you. Doesn't that sound familiar? Is that not what we're seeing among people who don't love the Lord God? I'll just pick anything in your life that I have issue with and use that to disqualify me from listening to or being engaged to you, I cancel you. Cancel culture is not new. Read your Bible. Jeremiah's enemies wanted nothing to do with repentance, so they took out the messenger, or at least they attempted to. And Jeremiah had had enough, and he said, God, I am tired of feeling as though I have been deceived. You told me. You told me to go and to do this. I seem to remember this same thing happening with Jesus, right? What did the Pharisees do with Jesus? They tried to cancel him. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. When you get into your Bible, you'll recognize there's nothing new under the sun. Now, here's one problem, though. And this is the primary problem with Jeremiah's rut, with this discouragement, this conflict he's dealing with of rejection. He's wrong in verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? Oh Lord, you have deceived me. But God didn't deceive him. Do you know what God told Jeremiah in chapter 1? In chapter 1, verse 19, you know what God said to Jeremiah? They will fight against you. Now, let me show you what that means in the ancient text, the Hebrew. They will fight against you. It's a literal reading. 
In other words, the very first chapter of the book, when Jeremiah is receiving his call, what did God say? God said, Jeremiah, they're not going to like what you have to say, and they're not going to sit by and listen idly. They will fight against you, but Jeremiah, they shall not prevail against you. And here's why, Jeremiah, because you're articulate because you're a gifted communicator, because you're always going to understand my will, or they're going to always immediately fold to your will, or you'll win them over with some deep philosophical argument? No. He says, Jeremiah, here's why they won't prevail. I'm with you. I'm with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Now watch this. Drop this in the application of your life today. You know why God said Jeremiah would prevail? Because God was with him. And it was God's job to prevail him. Stop letting the narrative of a lost world be the source of your ability to interpret the times. Stop even being informed by the narrative of a lost world. The narrative of a lost world is deceived. I'm not angry or mad at a lost and dying world, but I will not allow the public narrative the popular narrative, the political narrative, the social narrative to drive the story of my life. I already have a God who told me why I exist. I already have a Savior that took away my sin. And if you were to just list all the ways the world is trying to drive the narrative, I already told a God that wholesale condemned racism. I can't hate a man or a woman because of the color of his skin, the background of her lineage or the legacy of their family or the language that they speak. It's settled. I can't do that and love Jesus. There's no room for it in my life. It's already settled what the definition of marriage is. It is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. It's already settled that God has created man in his image in only two ways. He created them male and female, and he does it from the womb. It's already settled that God loves Israel and has a special place in his heart for that people. And there will be a great amount of Jews who are saved upon Jesus' return according to the teachings of the book of Revelation. It's already settled that if a man claims to love God and will not work and feed his family, he is worse than a lost man according to the teachings of Paul. These things are already settled. They're already settled. And what I find is, I find that when we get discouraged, we become victims of allowing a lost world's narrative to control the lens in which we see the world. When the lens in which we see the world should be through the finished work of Christ and the truth of his word. God had already told Jeremiah, yeah, they're going to fight against you, but I'm going to prevail you because I am with you. And then the conflict kind of takes on a different twist in verse 9. Look what the Bible says. I love this. Jeremiah says, if I say, I will not mention him. He's talking about God. So translation, if I just quit, if I just walk away, I ain't doing this no more, God. I'm not preaching anymore about gloom and doom. I'm not telling them about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. I'm not going to call out their sins. I am done. I'm going to go get me an hourly job somewhere. I'm going to work on my 401k. I'm going to save up for a vacation home, and I'm going to enjoy my grandkids. But I am not entering into the arena of speaking truth into the life of other people. I am done. Jeremiah said, if I do that, look at verse 9. Or I speak no more in his name, there in my heart, as it were, a burning fire 
shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I can not. Jeremiah says, I'm almost danged if I do, and I'm danged if I don't. On one hand, the more I do God's will, the harder it gets. On the other hand, if I don't do God's will, I'm miserable because I feel him working in me. This is why Paul told young Timothy, Timothy, listen, no matter how you feel, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, you preach the word. You be ready season in, in season and out of season. And when you do it, you reprove people, you rebuke people, you exhort people, but you do it with patience. You can't change people. Only God can do that. And you make sure you give them teaching. Don't just scream at them and yell at them. Teach them God's word. But you preach the word. And you know, for every believer in this room, the reason that God has saved you is that your life preach the word to those around you. I don't mean carry a big black Bible and slap people on the head when they disagree with you. But I mean, do not negotiate with the truth. And I have promise in God's word that if you're willing to not negotiate, it will get harder before it gets easier. I have no guarantee to you that the trajectory of our nation is going to change. But remember what I always tell you. Folks love to say we need God to change our nation. We need God to change our community. We need God to change Washington. Let me tell you something. Let God change you. Share your faith with your lost friends and neighbors and loved ones and watch him save them. When he saves one, he will begin to infect in a good way their family. You know, the gospel's contagious too. And then as people get saved, families get changed. When enough families get changed, a community begins to change. When enough communities get changed, a culture begins to change. And when a culture begins to change, a nation begins to change. So stop whining about the nation and tell your friends about Jesus. Share your faith. Talk to them about the ins and the outs. And when they tell you they're not interested in faking it or putting on a face or going to church on Sunday when their heart's raw and their uh, dreams have been broken, take them to the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 20 and show them that we like them have points in our lives of great doubt and discouragement and conflict and God is big enough for that because no sooner does Jeremiah mention the conflict of rejection he breaks them to the confidence of remembering it almost seems like he's schizophrenic look at verse 11 but the Lord is with me now I want to ask a question Jeremiah, who are we dealing with here? Because Jeremiah, verse 7 says, oh, Lord, you lied to me. Verse 11, the Lord is with me. Now, we find that funny, and we should to some degree, but have you not been there? Can I tell you that some of my greatest praise comes out of my pain? Can I tell you that some of the most powerful moments of God speaking to my life have been after my greatest failures? When I am broken and hurting and questioning everything, if I'll just keep, if I have to crawl, I'll find that when he picks me up to praise, my worship has an authenticity and a purity that cannot be fabricated by a Sunday go-to-church smile. All of a sudden, Jeremiah breaks out into this beautiful praise of victory and vengeance. Not his vengeance, but the Lord's. Look what the Bible says. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. 
Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed. Isn't that interesting how he's feeling shame, but he says, Lord, I know eventually the shame's going to be on them. For they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Oh, Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. Don't you think it's interesting that he's praising God for seeing the heart and the mind? A few verses after, he revealed how ugly his heart and his mind were. If you've ever needed a preacher to tell you God is big enough for you to be honest with him, I'm telling you that from this text. Stop faking or playing around. Bring your warts to the Lord. Jeremiah certainly did. And by the time we get to verse 13, he says, Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy and from the hand of the evil doers. So verse 13, God's going to make it right. Praise his name. How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. God didn't create any perfect worshipers. You won't find any in Scripture but one. And he's worthy of worship. His name is the Lord Jesus. Every other worshiper in the Bible is weak, frail, prone to sin, bent toward rebellion, and yet capable of worship and praise. Some of you have been DQing yourself. You've been thinking because you struggle at times with extreme low, Because you get anxious, maybe discouraged, maybe depressed. Because something is happening in your life and you still can't make sense of it. That you are, to some degree, a lower level, second class follower of Jesus. Yet I find that God used people just like you and me, named Jeremiah, all throughout the scripture. Because as we leave this praise, we go back into another dark place. Where Jeremiah not only shows us the confidence of remembering, he shows us the curse of regret. Regret is such a powerful thing. And Jeremiah became so disillusioned at this point in his ministry, he regretted his birthday. Because he knew had he never been born, he would have never had to face what he's facing. Look what he says in verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born. Man, I like my birthday. Don't you like your birthday? I try to milk my birthday. I mean, 11.45 night before, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. It's my birthday. It's my birthday. It's your birthday. You know it's my birthday. You know, who doesn't like their birthday? Birthday cake, birthday candles. some point we stop doing candles. You have to call the fire department. But birthday cake, birthday candles. I like ice cream cake. I like to take my family out. I like to be together. Everybody likes their birthday, right? Jeremiah says, curse my birthday. Now, Hebrews were prohibited from cursing their parents. It's written in the Mosaic Law. So Jeremiah didn't say, curse my birthday and curse my mama and my daddy. But he did say, curse my birthday. And and I'm so frustrated. Curse the man who told my daddy I had been born. That's what he says. Look what the Bible says. Look at verse 14. Curse the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. And cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. So Jeremiah's father wouldn't have been there. There wasn't no OB unit when Jeremiah was born. It's not like Jeremiah's father was standing there in scrubs if it was a C-section or at a polo if it wasn't. It's not like Jeremiah's father was right there and, you know, up by the 
Wife says, and you're doing so good. I love you so much. And then she said, don't you talk to me. I cannot believe you did this to me. And then they go through that. Jeremiah, Jeremiah's, wasn't there. Jeremiah's dad may have been in the field when the wife went into labor. There's no ultrasound. There's no technology. And so somebody had to come tell Jeremiah's dad, hey, guess what? Good news. Your wife had a baby. And not only did she have a baby, it's a boy which means the family name, the lineage, the possession of property could continue on. This is why in the Hebrew Old Testament, there is this celebration of the firstborn son. For God gave his only son to us. The significance of it permeates scripture. And, and so, Jeremiah says, that guy, curse him too. Curse the day I was born and curse the guy. Now, most of the time in scripture, you bless people that bring good news. Isaiah 52, right? says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This is used in the New Testament to talk about the gospel. But Jeremiah says, no. And then he goes on to say something pretty cold. He says, basically, I wish my mother's womb had been my tomb. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 18. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame. Verse 17, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. And this is where we try to make sure you understand the difference between our effort to stay faithful to the word and so much of the weak preaching that happens in our culture. Listen. What do you do when you hear a man say that and the chapter ends? You know, we like to think all of our devotions and our sermons and our with a nice bow on them. But this one doesn't. There's no response from God and we don't hear any repentance. Chapter 21 starts a whole other set of circumstances and prophecies. But isn't that like life sometimes? I mean, if you're serious about walking with the Lord, aren't there situations where there's yet to be a bow to tie it up? Where there's yet to be resolution? Where there's still the rawness of emotion? Where there is a struggle that seems to be either ignored by God or he is delaying his activity in it? What do we do with verses like verse 18 where a man who is called by God says, why did I even come out of my mother and the chapter ends? I'll tell you what we do. We look down and we might flip the page. You know, this is only chapter 20. I got good news. There are 32 more chapters of him preaching. He did not quit. You know what happens in chapter 37? He gets imprisoned. In chapter 38, they lower him in a cistern for him to die. In chapter 43, he's forced to go to Egypt against his will. But guess what we never hear again? I want you to know that chapter 20 is the last time Jeremiah ever complains. This is the last time. So somewhere in that space in your Bible between verse 18 and chapter 21, somewhere in this journey, do you know what happened in Jeremiah's life? He realized he was what God said he was way back in chapter 1. And what did God say? I will make you this day a fortified city, 
an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. God said that not about Judah, but about Jeremiah. Close your Bibles. Listen to me. When we are allowed to see into the heart of people's struggles, like Jeremiah, the joy of the journey comes later. The obedience comes first. Jeremiah kept doing what God told him to do. Let me tell you how to bankrupt somebody's faith. Tell them following Jesus eliminates their sorrow and their struggles. When you do that, you set them up to believe this is a quick pro quo between us and God. I give God my heart. He gives me an abundant life filled with nothing but joy and blessing. He does give abundant life. He does give joy. He does bless us, and we should celebrate it. But the scripture teaches over and over again, if we are serious about following him, we have to recognize this is not the end. And we are citizens of a place where there will be no sorrow. But until that day comes, we have to be willing to recognize our hearts are going to walk through the grinder of this life at times. And our God is big enough to handle it. And he's big enough to not only handle it, but to use our suffering as the greatest megaphone of his existence in all the world. Who wouldn't believe in a God that never called you to suffer? But when the children of God who trust Christ willingly endure suffering to obey him, it is validity, proof that our God is real and that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Adoniram Judson went to be a missionary in the 1800s. If you go to Myanmar today, you'll see congregations like this one all over the countryside. People who love the Lord. This is, believe it or not, a First Baptist church in a community in what is today Myanmar. I wanted to end this morning by just letting you listen to his story. I don't often do this, but educating you to legacy is important. So if you'll allow me about one minute to read this, I want you to hear what God did through this man and his wife. Everywhere you look, especially in Baptist life, you see the name Judson. This is because Adoniram Judson and his first wife were among the first commissioned foreign missionaries in America. Adoniram Judson was raised in a devout home. His father was a pastor, a congregationalist pastor, a little bit different than Baptist. But upon attending Brown University, Adoniram fell in with a group of skeptical students, sound familiar? And left college convinced there was no God. However, one of his friends died, who was a skeptic, and it left Adoniram thoroughly shaken. Although he was not yet a Christian, he was too afraid to remain a skeptic. He received special permission to attend Andover Seminary in Massachusetts. And even though he wasn't a Christian, he was allowed to go to class. Within a couple of months, he became a fully devoted follower of Jesus. While at seminary, he felt a call to missions, as did some of his classmates. In response to the Congregationalists, formed an American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in 1810, 
And Adoniram was one of the first four appointed. February of 1812 was a big moment in his life. In a span of two weeks, he married his sweetheart, Anne Hasseltine. She also went by Nancy. He was ordained into the ministry and commissioned to be a foreign missionary and set sail to Calcutta, India. As congregationalists, the Judsons believed in infant baptism. Some of you grew up in that tradition where you were christened or baptized as a baby. They knew that upon arriving in India, they would meet William Carey. Carey was a Baptist. During the voyage, Adoniram studied the subject of baptism in hoping to counter William Carey's arguments. Of course, William Carey believed what our church believes, that you're baptized after you're saved, not when you're a baby. Instead, after studying the Bible, he came to understand Baptist convictions. Within a few weeks, his wife did as well. Upon their arrival to Calcutta, the Judsons received believer's baptism. He'd never been baptized as a Christian. He got baptized as a baby, but got saved in college. So he wanted to get baptized. The Judsons resigned from their appointment because they knew they couldn't represent churches that taught infant baptism. But this meant their financial support was cut off. Luther Rice was with them, another congregationalist. He became a Baptist too, and he went back to raise money, and he left them in India. The Judsons immediately began learning Burmese language and culture, believing it was necessary to be effective in the gospel. They translated the Bible and the Burmese language and other tracts. By the end of his life, he had translated the entire Bible, several dictionaries, lexical tools, authored and translated numerous tracts. The Judsons were frequently acquainted with sickness, suffering, and death. Now just listen. They lost three children. After failing gravely ill, Nancy, his wife, had to come back to America convalescing only to discover that her and her husband had become celebrities stateside. They didn't even know they were famous missionaries. Shortly after Nancy returned to the field, war broke out between Burma and England. In 1824, the Burmese emperor imprisoned all Western men, assuming them British spies. This included Adoniram. He spent 19 months in two different prisons, including one overseen by convicted murderers who had been spared the death sentence in exchange for becoming jailers. Many prisoners died, but Nancy's devotion kept Adoniram alive. She pestered, begged, and bribed so that he could be given food. She even managed to sneak his favorite pillow into the cell and inside sewed in a Burmese translation of the Bible. While she was doing this, she was also nursing an infant and raising two orphan Burmese girls. Adoniram would eventually be released from prison so he could serve as a translator for the peace negotiations. But the end of the war was not the end of his sorrow. Nancy died in 1826, and their two-year-old Maria died six months later. Adoniram's grief led him to eventually retract into seclusion. Can you blame him? He grew increasingly reclusive. He built a hut in the jungle. He named it his hermitage. He spent 40 days living in the jungle, eating nothing but a small bowl of rice. He dug his own grave. In many hours, he sat looking at it, contemplating his death. The jungle was tiger-infested, and many locals feared he'd be eaten. When he returned, after 40 days of self-exile, everyone was survived. He was alive. Over the course of 1830, he began to emerge from his spiritual darkness and had a new resolve to reach Burma for Christ. He enjoyed a decade of evangelistic faithfulness, especially among a specific tribe represented by that picture today.
He went home to be with the Lord in 1850. Let me tell you what you do when life doesn't make sense and your emotions don't seem to be honoring the Lord. You keep going. You keep obeying. And you keep trusting. And let me tell you why. He is faithful. Let's pray.